I wasn't necessarily that surprised that he was acquitted. However, I was extremely surprised and disappointed by the recommendation provided for the court for the acquittal. And here I really want to stress that to me, to a certain extent, really reflects the lack of understanding of the crime of enforced disappearance. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. It's time to discuss another case of universal jurisdiction where people are prosecuted for alleged crimes committed elsewhere. This time we're going to Switzerland, where a Belarusian former member of a military unit was prosecuted for the enforced disappearance of three political opponents in 1999. Uh, But in an unexpected move yesterday, and we're recording this on late September, the court announced that the man was actually acquitted. Yeah, it's all a bit confusing because it looked like this was kind of a bit of a potential slum dunk because this guy, and I'm going to stumble over his pronunciation, but I'll do my best, but Harauski or maybe Khorovsky, somebody will correct me in the end, he actually confessed the crimes and we'll give a link to this uh, YouTube link of uh, the media where, where he did his confession. He'd said that he was part of a death squad, killed these three opposition me- members, and that confession you know, was at least part of why the trial was possible. And it was uh, also really interesting because it was one of the fastest that we've ever seen happening. I think it started somewhere in mid September. And then by the end of September, it, it ended up with a verdict. Yeah. And then the confession was odd as well. He arrived in Switzerland to seek asylum in 2018 or 19, according to different media reports. And then he went on the Deutsche Welle and said that he'd been involved in three disappearances, providing information on the kidnappings and killings. Now, I really wanted to chat about this because I'm currently based in Vilnius in Lithuania, and that's next door to Belarus. And there's been a lot of interest in how you do, how you might put anybody from the Belarusian uh, regime on trial, what kind of accountability there might be. And then I saw that this Swiss case was starting and it really felt like, oh my God, they've jumped the gun. This was essentially the first time that Belarusian national was standing trial. And this was specifically for enforced disappearance, as far as I understood, in Switzerland. That's also going to be interesting to discuss with our guests, because as far as I understand, that's also a bit of new law in Switzerland. So luckily, we've got our two experts here who've been helping to follow the case. Let's introduce the first one. That's Anna srovin Korali. Hi, Anna. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Anna is doing her PhD at the International Law Department of the Geneva Graduate Institute. And her PhD is entitled, quite fittingly, Bringing Perpetrators of Enforced Disappearance to Justice in the Shoes of the Prosecutor. And with us also is Voni Rambolo-Manana. She's a senior legal advisor at Trial International. Hi, Voni. Hi. Thank you for having me. Von is working on international investigations and litigation at trial, and she watched the case from up close because it was Trial International together with FIDH and the Belarusian Human Rights Centre, Viasna, that was actually supporting two of the three families of the victims in filing the criminal complaint in Switzerland. So give us a bit of uh, what's been happening, Steph. 
We got a verdict from the Swiss canton of St. Gallen district, a court in Rorschach, and Yuri, despite his confession, was found not guilty. There will be an appeal. Yeah, I wanted to get your reactions and, and also say why was he acquitted? What did the judge um, say? And let's start with uh, Voni. I mean, of course, it's first of all, it came as a big surprise for us, for the partners, and I think for many people who watched the, the trial. It was a huge disappointment for the plaintiffs. We, of course, stand by them. And I have to say, maybe one positive thing is that it's, it is a first trial that is being held on the situation in the Belarus. And it also allowed to have this, at least this space to hear about the violent regime of Lukashenko. However, yes, we cannot say that we are happy with the verdict. And um, if I can maybe try to summarize, I had to <laughs> read this uh, press release uh, from the, the court like twice or maybe three times, and also the note taken by our team to understand it. So basically, the tribunal considered that the participation of the accused in the disappearance of Yuri Zakarenko, Viktor Gonchar, and Anatoly Krasovsky in 1999 was not legally proven. And they used two main ones, different ones. The one, the first one was uh, related to the accused himself. Basically, they didn't find him credible. They found that he made uh, many contradictory statements. First of all, in the, his asylum proceedings, I think we mentioned it at the beginning, but also in court, for instance, he was apparently unable to provide enough details about his military past. And also he was making contradictions in his account of the crimes themselves. So basically they found that he was not reliable, although, as you know, everybody found, uh, found otherwise. And for me, it was a bit uh, strange. First of all, they relied a bit too much for me on the asylum proceedings. I mean, as a former refugee lawyer, I think it's you shouldn't put too much weight on it in the sense that he recognized that he did, uh, he lied a little bit, that he also exaggerated some facts. But unfortunately, these are also parts of asylum proceedings, not because they do lie about what happened to them, but because sometimes they are told. Sometimes they suffer from memory loss. And, you know, we're talking about facts that happened many years ago. So I am a bit surprised that they would like to put so much weight on it. And the other thing is that if you, I don't know if you know, but he was also probably shot for misleading the administration of justice. In the end, he was also acquitted for that. So I see a bit of a contradiction here. Either he's lying or not. And in the end, they actually recognized that the murder happened. As I recognize that the government of Lukashenko played a role in it. So I'm a bit confused about that. So Anna, you also followed it. Did you share the sense of surprise that Voni had at, at this verdict? And what are the what are some of the aspects that you want to pick out that stood out to you apart from the, the uh, rather strange verdict that you can confess to a crime and then they say that you're not credible enough, even though they apparently from what Vani explained, did find that the crimes maybe did happen in some way. So let me answer the other way around. I would have been very positively surprised if he was convicted. So to a certain extent, I mean, knowing and taking into account that we don't have, let's say, a very developed jurisprudence on this, especially in the context of, of European countries, I wasn't necessarily that surprised that he was acquitted. However, I was extremely surprised and disappointed by the recommendation provided for the court for the acquittal. 
And here I really want to stress that to me, to a certain extent, really reflects the lack of understanding of the crime of enforced disappearance. So specifically on the statements of Mr. Harawski, which I hope I pronounced correctly, here I really have a problem with the fact that the court seems to be concerned because Mr. Harawski wasn't really able to identify the structure of the ministries, the, the how basically this, this, uh, this unit where he allegedly participated functioned. But it's at the very heart of the crime of enforced disappearance. And in 99% of cases, people involved are not aware of the structure because it's precisely the idea that they don't know the details, that they cannot provide information to the families of the disappeared victims. So this is for me the big issue. I also don't completely understand why this was, according to the court, the only relevant evidence to a certain extent. Uh, at least it's the only evidence that they put forward very much in the press, shared with the public. But then also regarding specifically the, the argumentation, according to the court, why he invented these facts is to me, again, very unconvincing because as Voni said, they seem to suggest that probably this could benefit him for the asylum uh, proceedings. But I don't necessarily see the point or the logic here because actually in Switzerland, uh, it's in my understanding that uh, it is true that if you show that you face persecution, that you are entitled at least to subsidiary protections, even if you committed certain type of crimes. But I don't necessarily understand why he would invent that he committed such a serious crime if no facts were known before. So for me, this is mysterious. And just to add then what is for sure me for even a bigger issue, and they dedicated really only, I think, three paragraphs to this, and this I was so disappointed, was this part where they basically say, you know, anyway, even if his testimony of Mr. Harowski would be uh, uncontroversial in any way, basically the crime was clearly not committed. And they say that on the one hand, the special intent, this intent to deprive the person of the liberty for a prolonged period of time was not fulfilled. And they say this is so because, you know, these three forcibly disappeared victims were killed. Therefore, at this moment, the physical act of the crime finished, which is for me totally wrong because enforced disappearance is composed of two different material uh, parts, but also interesting enough, and this is really crucial, they go against of what the Switzerland stated in the report to the Committee on Enforced Disappearances in how they understand the special intent for enforced disappearance, because Switzerland clearly said that according to Swiss law and theory and, and whatever this means, whenever the person is deprived of liberty in an illegal way, this is already this for, for a prolonged period of time, it's already fulfilled automatically with the deprivation of liberty. So for me also, this part is slightly problematic. Okay, well, I'm getting this kind of whole collection of layers of things that are questionable and elements that you think both legally and procedurally that uh, that might have sort of make this case not having worked out properly. So I'm wondering where we go from here in terms of understanding. Should we actually look at why it was that he was put on trial in the first place? I mean, I understood that he had been arrested and released and then investigated and he had the confession. I mean, funny, was the, was the trial kind of pushed forward by the victim's families? Is is that in fact how how it works? Maybe that that's worthwhile understanding the procedure about. Yeah, very good question. No, I think what happened was that 
he was arrested first because of uh, what he revealed in the press. And then we filed the denunciation and then the plaintiff filed their complaints. So he was to, to be heard. But then what happened is that there was supposed to be a decision on whether or not we should keep him in detention. I think what happened was simply that they found that in the end, he was there was no risk of flight. Uh, I mean, he was being cooperative. And uh, in this sense, they decided that he could be uh, free. And uh, in the end, yes, he did collaborate. He was there and he was supposed to be heard again, and which happened. And then it uh, led up to his trial. Before we go into maybe more details of the trial, uh, which is also strange, uh, what I want to just circle back in, in Anna, did I understand it properly that, to put it very shortly, that the judges basically said because these people were killed and not kept somewhere for a long time, it might not be enforced disappearance? And can you explain a bit to me about this? Because apparently there is a Swiss law specifically about enforced disappearance as a standalone crime. And can you give a little bit more detail about that law? And I guess this is the first test case for it. Yes, I have to say I was a bit upset when I when I really read this explanation, but there are really various legal issues with the reasoning of the court, and you grasp it very correctly. So basically, they seem to suggest, uh, at least in the public press release, that because these three forcibly disappeared victims were killed almost immediately after they were abducted, if you like, that therefore there was clearly no intent to really commit enforced disappearance. So they seem to suggest, you know, maybe there is likely there was an intent to kill them. However, this is not the question before this court, but clearly there was no intent for enforced disappearance. For me, this is problematic, again, from a very practical point of view and experiences that we have with enforced disappearances, where in many, many, many cases, unfortunately, you have a situation where a victim is forcibly disappeared and then also subsequently killed. Sometimes this is after some hours, sometimes this is some after some days. And basically the killing really doesn't preclude enforced disappearance. And it's common in some countries, a very good example is Colombia, that when you would have both the killing and enforced disappearance, you would just invoke both crimes. In this case, murder clearly was not invoked because of the issues of the passage of time and the so-called prescription. And I think Bonnie wants to jump in. Yeah, thank you. I mean, if I understand the ICCPD, it also says that abduction is a kind of deprivation of liberty. And it also mentioned any other forms of deprivation of liberty. And I wonder whether they should, the judges shouldn't have also used that to have a kind of landmark decision. That's my first point. And I also wanted to know what do you think about, because it's also confusing to me, of the intent that they clearly have not to communicate information about their whereabouts. Isn't it one of the elements of the, the crime of the enforced disappearance? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And in fact, if looking at the very first question that we discuss, what is my reaction to the verdict? I think my reaction to the verdict is as well that Switzerland or Swiss courts might should be aware that Switzerland is bound by the International Convention on Enforced Disappearance. Therefore, it must also consider enforced disappearance in a certain way that they agreed to when they ratified the convention. And this would include judiciary, I think, at all levels. You're totally right in understanding that deprivation of liberty can really encompass any type of deprivation. Liberty doesn't matter if it's legal or unlegal. And um, you are also totally right in understanding that there is this other 
element, if you like, physical element. As you know, sometimes we, we explain how the crime is committed or proven is, you know, it has this physical element and then the mental element. You always need to prove both beyond reasonable doubt. And what is odd, if you like, I think in enforced disappearance is, is that it has two physical elements. So it's the first one is the privation of liberty. The second one is really this denial to share information. And what is again interesting is that you don't have to have the same person committing both part of physical act. And actually, this is common that only some guys, you know, they collaborate in depriving liberty and then the other guys denied information or maybe then the other guys didn't collaborate in the first physical act. You need to have both. And also, only when both come to end, you can say that enforced disappearance ended. So you can have, I think, different explanations when the crime of enforced disappearance, which I claim to be enforced disappearance in the case of Mr. Harowski, ended. Some would say maybe that, you know, it didn't end basically until the moment where when he appeared before the media, as we said at the beginning in 2018, 2019. Okay, because this was in the moment he would say when the crime ended for him. But this was already after 2017, in any case, when Switzerland already ratified the treaty, which means that he can be prosecuted for the crime of enforced disappearance. And I think what the court got conceptually wrong is really this if you like, odd or specific composition of enforced disappearance, which has been uh, defined or the definition has been constructed in a specific way corresponding to the context in which enforced disappearances have been committed. And therefore, I also am concerned with this expression of Swiss legal theories, which one you very, uh, I think, rightly pointed out, because I wonder which Swiss legal theory has basically discussing depth in forced disappearances. I'm not convinced by them, but I am somehow concerned that if we refer to the Swiss legal theory, just discussing the privation of liberty in general, we are just not going to reach the correct conclusion. And kind of helicoptering back or zooming out, there is such widespread impunity for enforced disappearance. Um, if we look at Mexico, there are only 36 sentences so far of enforced disappearance, and we know that there are stories of many, Thousands. many, many more. Does that impact maybe the fact that domestic courts are kind of unsure on how to deal with this? What do you think, Anna? I think that one inherent problem, of course, in enforced disappearances is, and there I again continue, I keep on coming back to our first question, is that, of course, it implied to a certain level involvement of a state. And why I say I'm coming back to the first question, because another thing mentioned in the press release by the court is that they seem to say, you know, at any point we feel uncomfortable on deciding on the criminal liability of Mr. Harauski, because one of the parties which would be affected in this decision is Belarus, which is not present in the proceedings. Which in my case is extremely odd because, again, this is a criminal court deciding on that specific case of responsibility of Mr. Harauski. And there's various ways also how one state can collaborate in enforced disappearance. And a criminal court which faces basically an issue or faces a, a case of enforced disappearance, a way always also to, to speak of the state in general, is to claim that in any case... The state was involved through something that we call acquiescence, uh, which is a specific wording or way of involvement of the state in enforced disappearance, which appears in the International Convention on Enforced Disappearances. 
And what could mean acquiescence in practice? Well, in my view, it could also be the fact that Belarus never investigated clearly and really generally and prosecuted this crime. So they could also say, okay, this was already sufficient by the involvement of the state in that specific case of, of Mr. Harauski. Now, I really think Mexico is an example which shows how complicated it gets. And you correctly mentioned that, at least according to the information of the National Search Commission of Mexico, which allegedly has over, I think, 100,000 of missing and forcibly disappeared people, which is such an enormous number, there are only 36 sentences for actually for enforced disappearance and something that we also call disappearances by private individuals, which are basically criminal gangs. But it's, it's absolutely the impunity, I think, for enforced disappearances is something unique. And it often is also due to the lack of understanding of specific of the crime, where I think prosecutors, lawyers, judges have to get out of their, usually, if you like, criminal, national criminal law hat, to understand how the crime of enforced disappearances was born, which was really in the context, of course, of human rights documents. Why? Because there was complete impunity for this crime. There was complete lack of interest from many countries. There was complete denial. And I think this is really shown by, if you like, the, the results that we get at many domestic courts. If I may, I would mention also the Al-Thabi trial in Syria, where we had such a strong push to include enforced disappearances as a crime against humanity. And I'm not sure if you read the statements of the victims, they emphasized how much of importance was for them to speak of this crime, because they said this was part of us, of a Syrian regime. It meant you don't exist, you stop existing. You just, you, you weren't anymore in this world. This was harsher for us than just to take us away from this world because we were there, but we weren't there at the same time. And you really see then the decision again here of the prosecution not to include the crime due to, they claimed in that specific case, the lack of official inquiry into the fatal whereabouts of these disappeared people, which we all know that I think in the Syrian context, it's very hard to make official inquiry, especially during the civil war, reflects the lack of understanding of the specifics of the crime. Maybe this is a good point for me to ask Vonnie to come back in because you did watch this particular trial, Vonnie, and I'm wondering whether there were aspects in this trial, you know, in terms of the evidence, maybe some of the victim statements or things that you'd like to point out that were at least positive out of this and maybe you might be brought forward when you come to, to appeal. Well, I think the first positive things were was that I mean it's it is a first for everyone, and I think I, I appreciate the fact that the judges wanted this whole week to reflect upon it. It was right in the sense that yes, they realize they have to be humble about it and they need to think about it further before reaching a verdict. And I think I appreciated that. I also enjoyed the fact that well, the defense lawyer when he argued in his oral arguments, he didn't deny the facts at all. He was really supporting uh, the facts as they were uh, told by uh, his client and by everybody else. And what was interesting was that the judges then gave back the floor to the legal representative on the legal aspects and also to the prosecutor, which was interesting because it again points out that it's very a question of flow that is not settled yet. So it shows how much uh, they have to think about it. But I, I mean, again, I wish there would have been like more creative in the sense that I would have been 
you know, adopted a broader interpretation rather than sticking like strictly to the Swiss law. Maybe, I mean, I have to convey here the, the viewpoints of the plaintiffs. It's very important, of course, because we have been supporting them for uh, many months now. And I think it's, I have seen also as a missed opportunity is that they didn't give them a space to express themselves. And that's a pity because they did request to be heard, which was denied on the grounds that they wouldn't be able to bring anything to the facts. I understand that. However, it would have been really important to them, I think, to be able to express their suffering and what they have been through for 25 years. And that's, I think, is a shame. And also what was strange is that they were not able to sit close to their lawyers. They had to sit within the public, which is, a, I mean, it, to me, it's symbolic. You have to give them a special place now in the tribunals. And uh, also one thing, and that's something that they told us, and uh, it's the lack of translation. They received translation only on the very key points of the verdict, for instance, but not everything. And I mean, that would have been amazing for them, I think, to, you know, have more space. And I think it's possible. And I really hope, I mean, they will appeal the verdict and we definitely support them in, the, in this. And uh, I hope that with the appeal courts, they will actually make things better for them. And... We said that this case is considered groundbreaking for international law. It's a forced for enforced disappearance, looking at Belarus on the basis of universal jurisdiction. It's the first trial for this crime in, in Switzerland. Yay, yay for firsts. But we also know that Switzerland's been long criticized for being slow on taking universal jurisdiction cases until recently when the new federal prosecutor arrived in 2022 and made it a priority. And according to the 2022 annual report of the Attorney General, there are 30 preliminary inquiries for investigations into international crimes committed between 1982 and 2022 in 14 countries. We have the Liberian conviction that we saw this summer. Moni, could we say Switzerland is kind of on a roll with universal jurisdiction? It's a Swiss roll. Sorry, I can't, I can't, uh, couldn't, couldn't help but say that. This yeah. is such a UK comment to make. It doesn't exist in the, in in the Dutch. It's a particular dessert that you eat in the in the UK. So, Vonnie, is is Switzerland where it's all at now? Yes, for us, it is a very positive sign. I mean, since the appointment of the new general prosecutor, uh, Stefan Blattler. We received a lot of signs, for instance, he did yeah, recognize that there was a need to have more resources for this division, the division RTVC, which is mutual legal assistance, terrorism, international criminal law, and also cybercrime. So just the title of the division means a lot, that they really need to have more resources. And uh, I think the fact that he realized that is important just to start to begin with. And I think also I have to say the war in Ukraine plays uh, also a lot here because they realize they needed to investigate. They cannot be the country that does, you know, that stay on site. So I think it helps in this matter. But it's important that because they do have a very important and heavy mandate. And at least at trial, we have uh, some pending investigation cases that we are following and we really hope that they will uh, go forward uh, very soon. It's what we've been told, at least, that uh, it could happen at some point. And I hope that Switzerland and other countries will actually catch up on of this and uh, this uh, trend to try to investigate international crimes, even if they are committed abroad, which is the basis of international conventions, duties that they have and responsibilities that they need to face. And that's why we believe in uh, the principle of universal jurisdiction. 
What about you, Anna? Do you agree that uh, that uh, Switzerland now looks like it's uh, really starting to get going? Swiss wall. Now I keep on thinking about it since you mentioned it. Yes, I I I do agree. I think it is going slow, but I also think international justice it, it's it's slow. Sometimes also we have situations such as this one where I don't think it necessarily helps to be very fast because as you said it yourself uh, the trial was really carried out in two days and then basically the verdict came out which I wonder if it was also sufficient to really look uh, profoundly in, in all the evidence but I very much welcome still this this trial and I think it's a good and important sign also for the other countries that they for sure shouldn't be like the safe haven basically for for many perpetrators that come on their territories. Anna, let me just pick back up a point that you pointed out where Harowski implicated others in his confession, namely the Belarusian state. Now, do you both think that this will be a problem for the for Belarus and, and President Lukashenko or other top officials, ev- even with the acquittal? Because now this story kind of is out there. There's still an appeal and, and maybe not all the legal questions have been answered. Is Belarus going to be uh, subject of uh, other proceedings, do you think? Well, I really believe that although we often say that the criminal proceedings are separated and totally independent from proceedings regarding state responsibility, I do think often it's somehow impossible to to completely avoid having to touch slightly on, on basically on one type of responsibility when deciding on the other, especially in crimes where, I mean, state participation is somehow a precondition. But I also really am strongly convinced that the amount of evidence that we had, including specific these three forcibly disappeared victims and the number of reports, including the Council of Euro reports and many other reports where Belarus has very strongly rejected any kind of collaboration or possibilities for the international community to come in and try to really figure out uh, what happened specifically to these three political, what they were considered political opponents. Belarus in various steps clearly uh, showed their own reluctance to collaborate and, and it implicated somehow uh, in, in various things that it has done and uh, it's been doing, I think, on a daily basis, possibilities to start proceedings against it. And I even am very convinced that specifically the case of Harowski can turn still in a very different way on the acquittal stage. I'm very, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I am optimistic about that. I really saw this as a very first uh, step. This is a strong signal, even in raising awareness, even to Belarus, maybe, but also to, to other states. I can't help but, but think when we're talking about Swiss stereotypes, I think it's such a Swiss thing to consider that because you don't know enough about the organization of your death squad, which obviously if it was a Swiss death squad, it would be super well organized and documented, that that is like a reason to suggest that it's not true. This is only a super organized state like Switzerland would be able to make that argument where, you know, living in in states like Belarus and other kind of more those countries, you know that that stuff just doesn't get organized in that way. It just seems such a Swiss argument. I mean, being French, I have to say, coming from a very disorganized country, I do think, yes, there, there's something around this that we need to further analyze definitely. But what I've been noticing so far working in Geneva is probably the cautiousness 
that is being used in a way that law is applied in the proceedings. Yet I think, I mean, I'm also very optimistic about the appeal, but I think it's really the, the beginning of something. And I mean, we should not underestimate the impact it has. It will have on the victims of the, this violent regime, of, on Lukashenko's and the higher ranking officials and Belarus. Yes, for now, it's not a very good news, but at least it shows that there are ways, legal ways to you know, try to end the cycle of impunity. And I know that uh, not only Trial, Vyasna and Fidesz are thinking about it, but also many other NGOs, but also the Belarusian civil society outside the country are thinking about ways to put an end to this, to this impunity. And I think at least this shows that it's it's not in theory impossible to see these crimes punished. And in this sense, I think it's a good thing. And I think Switzerland was... <laughs> bold enough in the sense that they really tried, but uh, I hope that will be bolder in the in the appeal phase. Bonnie well, and Anna, thank you so much for spending time chatting to us. Um, we always end the podcast with our general asymmetrical haircuts questions. And the first one, just in case it's useful for either of you, is, is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't ask you, didn't get a, get a chance to say? There could be so many things, at least on my end, uh, because uh, I really think that uh, to be able to understand the dimension and specific of enforced disappearance, uh, one really has to dig deep and one really has to dedicate enormous attention to understanding really its impact on the victims, which really are anyone who suffered direct harm, which really, I think, goes beyond any type of, if you like, the any type of, of pain that one can imagine, not knowing what happened to your loved one doesn't allow you to sleep, to breathe, to live. Funny, anything that you wanted to add that we didn't highlight yet? I have to, again, stress that the courage it took uh, to the plaintiffs to join this case, security-wise, also you know, regarding, you know, the mental stamina that it takes to try to fight and obtain justice. It's a it's a, it's exhausting, I think, and uh, we are very all humbled by their their courage and their strength, and we, you know, receive that from them as well. And we hope that, um, I mean, for us the fight continues, and uh, we hope we'll be able to talk about something more positive uh, in the coming months. And then our new asymmetrical haircuts question is: Do you have a favorite court case uh, that you like to either teach or talk about or bore people with over dinner? Something that was important for you or that kind of put you on the path of the the work you're doing. Start with you, Vonnie. Well, the most interesting cases I've been following recently, I think, are the Neman Shaba cases. You know, it's the ones where the French Open Court are uh, confirming its jurisdiction over the Syrian cases. And I think these are landmark decisions because it finally provided clarifications on the criteria of the double criminality, but also of the habitual reasons of the suspect. So in this sense, I believe they are very important and also they influence the lawmakers who finally decided to get rid of the, some of the legal barriers. And every time you make a country make it easier to apply universal jurisdiction, it's always a great progress, I think. And you, Anna, is there a case that you particularly refer to in your uh, teaching work? So first of all, you've destroyed my plans because I prepared. I already thought of my favorite question regarding the book or movie. We'll come to that in a moment. 
Okay. Yeah. So um, regarding the, the my favorite case, I think what I would highlight, maybe since this is a podcast about enforced disappearance, really this this famous case of Velázquez Rodríguez before the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which I think really think was a milestone for anyone working on enforced disappearance, but also other things, for instance, sexual violence and specifically violence against women. So maybe I would highlight this case for anyone who hasn't read it yet. I strongly recommend it. And now we get to your favorite question. And, and as you've prepared, you get to go first. Are there any books, podcasts, documentaries, movies that you recommend either on topic of international law or whatever you do to not think about enforced disappearance? There's really a time when I don't think about enforced disappearance. However, you are also, uh, uh, your podcast is also uh, one way for me to help to think about other international law topics because I always write down the name of the books and the, the documentaries recommended by your guests. And then usually I watch them. But I would still recommend two or three movies that I've seen quite recently. And I think especially one for anyone interested in understanding the dimension of enforced disappearance, it's really a must. It's called Sin Señas Particulares. And uh, so there's only, in my understanding, the, the, the title in Spanish. And I also watched it in Spanish, maybe for the ones who know well those things are able to find the, the subtitles in English. It's about enforced disappearance in Me Mexico. And I think it's uh, it really helps to, to show the dimension of the phenomenon. Another amazing movie, it's Burden of Peace, which is about Claudia Pasipas, no, of the Guatemalan prosecutor. And about the book, I think I would like to recommend also one that I read quite recently, which is beautiful, which is uh, In the Sea There Are Crocodiles, I think it's called. And it's about an Af Afghan refugee who traveled from Afghan to eventually he ended up in Italy. But it's, uh, I mean, clearly it's a very, it's a sad, difficult story, but I think it's important to read it. And I also think it's just written in a beautiful way. And Volley, why don't you help us close with a great uh, recommendation for uh, anything that you've been watching, listening to, or reading? I've seen a documentary many years ago. I mean, uh, there was a documentary about... Um, Cameronese lawyers, I think the name, the only woman, the name is Sisters in Law, which was very inspiring. <laughs> and uh, for me, it was, I mean, I really like was with them in the whole documentary. And I think that's actually what started to bring me this kind of uh, energy to become a lawyer and to yeah, join the fight, the human rights and the international criminal law. But now I'm reading a French book. A new one and that just really has been raised in a few, like a few weeks ago, which is called La Mémoire de la V. It's a, a famous French writer and she, it's the first time that she actually talked about the history of her family, how they were deported to be workers, uh, Indian workers to come to Mauritius and who finally settled there. And it talks about the world of domination and how it actually impacts their lives and the generations after that, uh, that followed. So I found it, found it both beautifully written and also very uh, interesting as well. Uh, the name of the French writer is Natasha Apana. Thank you very much for those beautiful recommendations. We will scour the internet and place all the Google links on our show notes as usual. So other people like Anna can look at the recommendations and then start reading the books or looking at the documentaries. Thank you so much both for, for taking the time and, and getting us in kind of uh, supersonic speed through, through the Swiss trial. I'm sure when the appeal is going on that we will get back to you and find out what happens next. 
or we'll do another podcast about uh, other forms of accountability for Belarusia because this is definitely something that I, I want to uh, spend some time on. Or we'll be ending up doing some more enforced disappearance because it's obviously something that's not uh, not going away and there are so many issues around this. So we'll, we have a whole lot to get back to. Thank you both. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.